I'm going to open our time with prayer and we're going to jump in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people here in this place. Thank you for warmth on a cold day. What a blessing it is to have a warm church building where we can sit in comfort as we interact with one another, fellowship, enjoy one another's company, and sit under the instruction of your word. Bless our time in this hour, our fellowship, and especially our time during our worship service. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our membership class this morning. So first, if you are interested in joining Mission Road Bible Church and you started two weeks ago in kind of the membership class process, hopefully you let Pastor Adam know. Uh, talk to Kathy or talk to Pastor Adam, kind of put yourself on his radar. If not, and you're here today and you're thinking, wait, I didn't realize we're in the membership class, but we are, and I'm interested in the membership, then please talk to Pastor Adam after Sunday school this morning. Our plan was to begin January 6th going through membership, which we did. Then last week, of course, due to the uh, inclement weather, we did not meet. But we're kind of just shifting everything back, and we're going to continue with our class as planned. So we'll be doing this until February 3rd. We'll have membership class during adult Sunday school. So again, if you're new, you're interested in membership, please make it a priority to be here and, and please talk to Pastor Adam to let him know so that we can make sure that you have all that you need to go through that process. If you're already a member and you're wondering why you're coming to Sunday school to hear this, it's to remind you of what we're about at MRBC, what it means to be a member at MRBC. Pastor Rick actually this morning is going to preach his sermon on the membership commitments that we have as a body at Mission Road Bible Church. When you see the time at the end of services every quarter where we do a membership commitment and folks come up front and we ask them to make some affirmations, yes or no's, and then we as a congregation also in response give yes or no's. They're all yeses, but no is I guess your last chance to hit eject. We... We do that on a regular basis. We want to be reminded why we do that as a church body. So that's why we're devoting this time and the time during our worship service to this. It's not just for new folks. If we were doing that, we would be casting a really wide net for just a few. This has benefit for every member at Mission Road Bible Church. So again, if you're new, please contact Pastor Adam. If you're not, please don't check out. Be encouraged to think critically about membership and be reminded about what it is that you're committed to. Pastor Adam started by saying, look, why, why membership? And that is being a part of the body. I want to specifically be a part of this body, this church, Mission Road Bible Church. Also, submission to leadership. I want to specifically be shepherded by the leadership at this church. And then a commitment to service and care. That is saying I am specifically able to commit to being faithful to this local group of believers. And one of the presuppositions for that type of commitment is doctrinal unity or doctrinal agreement. So if you're considering membership, first, you, we encourage you to get on our website under about and what we teach and then download our doctrinal statement and our bylaws. And then if you have questions about those things and you're in the membership process, please grab an elder, grab a pastor. We want to talk to you about those things. But with the, the idea that doctrinal unity and doctrinal agreement are a presupposition of membership, 
we then begin to discuss and we teach during this time our doctrinal distinctives. So first, what are distinctives just in general? Well, they're features that distinguish our doctrine and ministry from other evangelical gospel preaching churches. The distinctives that we're going to talk about over the next two weeks are not what we believe to be the sum of orthodoxy, first of all, okay? So these six distinctives are not what we say, look, this is what it means to be a Christian. You believe these six things, and if you don't, you're, un, you're an unbeliever. That's not at all what we mean by our distinctives. They are distinguishing marks doctrinally of us from other really what we would call evangelical gospel Bible-believing churches. So this isn't what distinguishes us from Roman Catholicism. It's not what distinguishes us from the church next door, the community of Christ. It, it is what mainly distinguishes us from conservative Bible-believing churches in the area. Now, of course, some of these distinctives are gonna distinguish us from those other entities I just mentioned, but that's not the point of having our distinctives. We're not worried about people joining our church being confused about whether or not this is a Roman Catholic church. Okay, we want to show you the distinctives that we have that mark us out from the fabric of other evangelical churches that we would affirm as Bible-believing teaching churches in our area. So they're unique aspects of our doctrine and ministry that would essentially make someone say, I want to be at MRBC for the reasons that I listed earlier, to commit to that body, to be shepherded by those leaders, to serve there, instead of giving my membership, giving those commitments and submitting to leadership in another evangelical church that very well may have a faithful gospel witness, be faithful bearers of the truth and teachers of the scriptures, but just differ on some of these doctrinal distinctives. With that in mind, I wanna make two clarifications, okay? So just keep the distinctives idea in your, the back of your mind. We're gonna come back to those specifically in just a moment. Two clarifications. Number one, doctrinal commitment at MRBC. What does that mean? which again presupposes an understanding of what we would call doctrinal prioritization. And so I wanna get into that just a little bit. So what does it mean to commit to doctrine at MRBC as a member and then what is doctrinal prioritization? The latter is the need to rightly assess <laughs> doctrinal disagreements and areas where we differ from other Christians. All of God's revealed truth is important I think you would all affirm that, but it's not all in the same order or of the same order of importance. There are priorities. Some doctrines should receive a higher priority, namely ones without which you can't be a Christian. So very easily an example of this, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is extremely important. It is of a higher order, a higher priority than, for example, one's understanding of baptism, even though we would say that that's very important and can have gospel implications. One's understanding of baptism, I would say, is even more important and of a higher priority than, than some of our end times, our eschatology. And we would say that's important, and the Bible teaches it, and we have that in our doctrinal statement. But just because it's in our doctrinal statement and it's a doctrinal distinctive does not mean that we elevate all those things to the same level of importance to where we would be concerned about someone's salvation if they differ from us on a particular area that isn't at that highest level. Think of it like concentric circles. And the, the biggest circle in this illustration is orthodoxy, what it means to be a Christian. Without believing these things within this circle, you can't be saved. 
our doctrinal distinctives start to tighten that circle. So we're not defining who's in and outside of the big circle of orthodoxy with our distinctives, okay? Our what we teach statement has things that would define that, but also things that wouldn't. So everything in our doctrinal statement does not, is not the test of orthodoxy at MRBC. So I just wanna make that clear. When we look at a what we teach statement, we're not necessarily saying you must believe all of these things, not only to be a member here, but also to go to heaven. Okay, that's not what we mean. But we are saying that all those things are important to us and that we teach all and that's what we believe the Bible teaches so we're gonna teach that. But within that, there is this issue of doctrinal prioritization. What's a primary doctrine? Something that is salvific, something that affects whether you can be saved. Then you have secondary doctrines, tertiary doctrines, and we want to think about all those things properly and in their right place as we reflect on our distinctives as a church. So again, what we teach is distinct from a test of orthodoxy. Doesn't mean we don't think it's important. That's why it's in our what we teach statement. We're going to uphold and teach those doctrines. But that's different than saying you can't be a Christian unless you believe this. And that brings me to why we say what we teach, a what we teach statement versus what we believe when somebody comes to this church, let's imagine for the sake of illustration, somebody was converted last week and finds their way to Mission Road Bible Church and says, they're in here this morning and says, I want to join this church. We don't say, okay, you can once you've studied and agree that you believe all of the things in our doctrinal statement. Instead, we would give that individual our doctrinal statement and say, this is what we teach. We want you to be aware of what we teach, but we don't expect you to go to seminary before you join our church. Hey, do you see the difference? We're saying this is what we teach. This is what we believe the Bible teaches in a nutshell, and this is what you're gonna hear and see upheld at Mission Road Bible Church. But that's different than saying this is what we believe, meaning as a member, you have to affirm that you already 100% understand and know all these things, can defend them, and it's what you believe. We don't, we don't say that. We have a what we teach statement. So again, a new believer can come and join our church understanding that we're going to teach things in accordance with our what we teach statement and that the elders and leaders of this church are going to uphold that and faithfully instruct in accordance with it. But we don't expect them to have exhaustive knowledge of all of the things that are in that statement. That wouldn't be reasonable. So there's a difference between those two things. So what we teach, our doctrine, does represent what we're committed to upholding, teaching, and promoting. It does not represent what we think every Christian must believe in order to be saved. That's a very important distinction, something to have in your mind as we talk about our distinctives. So with that as background, then what does doctrinal commitment look like at MRBC? Well, in our membership commitments, we say this, I will affirm our church's doctrinal statement, remaining teachable where questions remain, avoiding the promotion of any doctrine contrary to our doctrinal statement. That's the commitment that members of MRBC make. All new members and, and those of you that are here, that's the commitment that we, that we expect to be upheld by our members. Affirmation of our church's doctrinal statement, which is our what we teach doctrinal statement. And then the understanding that you'll, you will remain teachable where questions remain and you will avoid the promotion of any doctrine contrary to our doctrinal statement. So, with doctrinal prioritization that we just discussed as a presupposition in your mind for this commitment, what does this mean? What does this doctrinal commitment imply? 
Well, first, it doesn't imply that you check your mind at the door, okay? That's absolutely not what this implies. It doesn't mean that once you join our church, you stop bringing your Bible, you stop studying your Bible, and you just listen to what we say, okay? So it's not this idea that you don't do theological study, that you don't press in further, nothing like that. But it does mean this. It does mean that you submit your doctrinal inclinations and questions to the, doc, the theological leadership of this church. Do you see the difference? It does mean that you are understanding that the primary, well, the theological leadership of this church is the elders. And that we are called to uphold doctrine in accordance with our doctrinal statement and that as members, you submit your doctrinal inclinations to that loving, instructive leadership that our elders are called to give you. So when does that play itself out? It plays itself out when there's areas of disagreement. When you have further questions. We have open doors as elders and pastors at this church about doctrine. We, the, some of the best meetings that we have are when people say, I don't understand this, help me. Why does the church believe X, Y, or Z? Can you help me understand that? Can we study that together? Those are wonderful meetings. Those are sweet times of study, sweet times of fellowship, and not only if after 10 minutes there's agreement, okay? So though that type of relationship is a blessing and we encourage that. That is what we mean when we say that you will remain teachable where questions remain. So this, this humility that comes and says, I'm not sure that I understand or agree necessarily with what your what we teach doctrinal statement says, but I'm going to submit myself to the leadership of this church and I want to understand why you're here and I want to know if I'm wrong. I'm coming in with the presupposition that I have something to learn from the leadership that is called to shepherd me in accordance with the doctrine that they're called to uphold as leaders. That is different than simply saying, I guess I'll just join the church and agree to disagree. There's a massive difference between signing up to join Mission Road Bible Church and saying, I disagree on this point, and I disagree on this point, and I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree, but I wanna be at that church. Remaining teachable is not agree to disagree. Remaining teachable is not galvanizing yourself in a doctrinal position over and against the position that you know coming in as somebody who's submitting to membership that the elders hold. It is coming in saying, I may not be where they are, but I wanna know why and I want to see if I need to be where they are. You're coming in with your eyes open, understanding that we're gonna lead and shepherd in accordance with what we say we teach. Very different, remain teachable. Doesn't mean you understand every reason why we hold the position. It doesn't even mean you agree, jot and tittle with everything because you've studied it exhaustively but it does mean that you're gonna come in and you're gonna say, where you don't agree, I want to be instructed and informed and I want to come in and be helped and guided in my understanding of scripture. Uh, this, this is not intended to sound harsh at all, but the question remains, if somebody wants to galvanize themselves in a position of, of, a, of a fairly significant doctrine that they know that the leadership doesn't hold, and when I talk about galvanize, I mean you're digging in. Why would you wanna be at this church with this leadership and this doctrinal statement? Again, that doesn't mean that you come in already knowing where you agree on every line with leadership. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, why would you wanna dig your heels in about something before even joining the church that you know we're not gonna teach, that you know we're not gonna lead in, in, in accordance with? Uh, 
okay? So there's a difference between holding a position and promotion. We say you're not gonna promote it. That means you're not gonna teach it. If you don't agree and affirm a particular area of a doctrinal statement, you can't, you're not gonna teach that. And that doesn't just mean preaching from the pulpit. Promotion includes subversively encouraging others to question the doctrine of our church and our leadership. So all about the attitude and the spirit with which disagreement is, is approached. And let me just say again, if there are areas where you're, you don't agree or you don't are unclear, please come and talk to elders and pastors. We love that. And it's, it's not even, it's not so that we can debate. It's so that we can lovingly look with you at our scripture. Let's seek understanding. Those are wonderful conversations. Wonderful conversations to have. So I would say this, two examples, then we'll move on. I think this is not teachable. I know what I believe. I hold the opposite doctrinal position to MRBC, but I wanna join your church and I'll just ignore you when you teach in the area where I disagree. That's not teachable. Is that fair? I think this is. I consider myself to hold this position, but the fact that the elders in this church firmly hold a different position gives me pause. I wanna study it and learn. Will you help me? That's teachable, okay? Important distinction there. So the membership commitment with regard to doctrine means you should not join this church assuming that you're gonna sway the leadership to believe what you believe over and against the doctrinal statement, okay? And you should not join the church with plans to galvanize yourself in a position that is different from our church. But it also doesn't mean that you have to come in ready to sign on the dotted line areas where you don't understand. There is much, much, much room for us. We open the Bible every week in this church. I hope you're learning. I'm learning every week when we are preaching at this church. So this is not a, some sort of a caveat where leave your Bible, leave your brain. You already have to work out what you believe before you join. And then once you join, we just come together and affirm each other that we all, all no. We're submitting to, to scripture. We're submitting to the preaching and teaching of the elders in this church. We wanna grow together. And there's a right way to do that and a wrong way. And we want it to be the right way, teachable, humble, in love. So what are our distinctives at MRBC? We're gonna spend two weeks on this. And as will be said, probably next week too, and every time we do a membership class, each one of these could be a class, each one could be a, a, teach, a preaching series, each one could be a year-long study. We're gonna do this in just a couple weeks and spend just a few moments on each just to give a high level. And again, if there are questions, please, please ask. The distinctives of MRBC, we are Calvinistic. Adam's gonna teach about that next week. In short, we believe that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. We teach that. He is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of totally depraved, unwilling, and unable sinners. We're Baptistic. That is that believers are to be baptized by immersion in water as a public declaration of their faith in Christ. So uh, believers implies not babies. Elder-led, that's the third distinctive. The church body is led and overseen by a plurality of shepherds. This church is elder-led. We teach, as one of our distinctives, a six-day creation that is that God created the universe in six literal days, exactly as it says in Genesis 1 and 2. One of my favorite distinctives is blended music. That is, we are intentionally eclectic. 
content-driven music, not style-driven. One week there may be an orchestra, one week a full band, one week a pastoral quartet and a staged reading with kazoos. There's a whole host of musical things that we do at MRBC. And the intent is that nobody's one preference wins. Okay, we're all submitting to one another in love and it's really great part of our church. And the last two, dispensationalistic and cessationistic, and we're gonna press into those just a little bit this morning. So first, dispensationalistic. This is what might be called a distinctive of hermeneutics, a distinctive of Bible interpretation. It involves more than just a certain list of doctrinal commitments, but it involves the way that you approach scripture and understand and interpret your Bible. Now, we say dispensationalistic. The istic portion of this is because there's always trouble with labels, okay? The same thing with Calvinism, the same thing with any theological label you can name. There's a problem because if somebody asks you, are you a Calvinist? Are you a dispensationalist? Are you a cessationist? Your answer should generally be, well, it depends on what you mean, by the term that you're saying, because we're at a point in church history where a lot of these terms carry a whole lot of different connotations and history and baggage. There are very good things about the labels and there are, all, and there are also confusing things. And so we say istic as a way of distinguishing that we're not necessarily waving a flag that's being defined by someone else. Okay, so if somebody asked me, is your church dispensational? My reply would be, depends on what you mean by dispensational. So at MRBC, saying that we are distinctively dispensationalistic means the following. Number one, it means that the New Testament does not reinterpret the Old Testament. It means that the New Testament does not radically reinterpret the Old Testament or reinterpret the Old Testament. We believe and teach that the primary meaning of any Bible passage is found in that passage. And that the New Testament doesn't redefine you know, in a reinterpretive way radically where it doesn't explicitly say that it's expanding something. It doesn't radically reinterpret Old Testament meaning in a way that overrides or cancels the original intention of the Old Testament writer. So what are some implications of that? What does that mean? How does that work itself out? Well, one, we would say, look, Israel is not superseded by the church. The church has not replaced Israel. That is one area where this hermeneutic of not radically reinterpreting the Old Testament bears itself out. We do not believe that the church has superseded or replaced Israel. The covenant promises made by God to his people Israel have not been redefined or superseded by New Testament revelation. So we believe, that look, there's a surplus in the covenant promises of God. Genesis 13, 5, moving through the covenants, even all the way to the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, where there is still mention of land, specific land promises. We see that as a surplus. It doesn't mean that there's something insufficient in what Christ has done as the ultimate completer of the covenants. It means that there's a surplus in God's clear promises that are yet to be completely fulfilled. So again, we say the church has not replaced Israel. Israel and the church are distinct and the church then cannot be defined as the new or true Israel. What are some implications of that at our church? 
Well, number one, spiritual unity and salvation between Jews and Gentiles is compatible with also understanding a future role for the people of Israel. What do I mean by that? We don't have a special classification right now of believers that are Jewish. Jewish people right now need to hear the gospel. They need to believe the gospel. And if they believe the gospel, we would call them Christians and they would be hopefully encouraged to join Mission Road Bible Church like the rest of us. That, there's not a special category of Jewish believer. One new man, according to Ephesians. That said, that spiritual unity does not exclude, though, a functional role for Israel in the future. And that's a mark of our dispensationalism. So the teaching of one new man in Christ does not exclude functional national ethnic diversity in the outworking of God's plan for the nations in the future. So we believe in a distinct future part for Israel in the outworking of God's redemptive plan. Again, as a, as a fulfillment of the promises in the covenants that have not yet completely been fulfilled, that there's a surplus there. Thirdly, our dispensationalism, our dispensationalistic distinctive is that there's a future millennial kingdom on the earth. That is this, Jesus will reign on the earth prior to the eternal state in a millennial kingdom. That is a mark of, our, of, of here being dispensationalistic. If you're looking for further information about, uh, that's exegetical in regards to our conclusion about Israel and the future, I would encourage you to look on our website at Pastor Rick's sermons from Romans 9, 10, and 11. He spent just a little bit of time working through those three chapters carefully, clearly. And so if there are questions, particularly Romans 11, with regard to this issue, please seek those out and, and also ask us questions. All right, let me say what our dispensationalistic distinctive does not mean. It does not mean that we structure Bible interpretation around a specific number of so-called dispensations or that we ignore the covenants of Scripture. doesn't mean that at all. Defining the term dispensation no more defines the essence of dispensationalism than defining the term covenant defines covenant theology. Okay? That's a misunderstanding. In fact, the remaining surpluses of God's covenant promises are why we're dispensationalistic at this church, okay? So don't get confused. When we say dispensationalistic, it doesn't mean that we put a, dispense, uh, a grid of dispensations over our Bible for our interpretation, okay? It doesn't mean that dispensations aren't interesting or, or that they're illegitimate. I'm just saying it's not the main marker of how we interpret Scripture. It's not one of the factors that makes us dispensationalistic, it does not mean that we believe salvation in the Old Testament was different than salvation in the New. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in what God revealed, in what God promised. So there's no difference in ultimate salvation by grace through faith. It does not mean that we believe the purpose of biblical eschatology is to identify specific political figures, the role of modern day nations, anything like that. Our dispensationalistic distinctive does not mean that, that we believe the primary thrust of eschatology are, is a specific end times timeline. That can sometimes, because of the label, be misconstrued. Lastly, it does not mean that we are anti-lordship. Quite the contrary. There's a strong heritage here to the opposite of that. Or that we're Arminian. You say, why would you say that? Calvinistic is one of your distinctives. It is. 
But dispensationalism in the label world is sometimes listed as anti-lordship and Arminian. And so I'm saying that our dispensationalistic distinctive does not mean that we're Arminian or anti-lordship. In fact, as we'll be taught next week, we're Calvinistic and we strongly teach the lordship of Jesus Christ in the life of all believers. Okay. Everybody clear, right? Dispensationalistic. Got it. Done. Good. To recap, in short, I would say this. What's it mean that MRBC is dispensationalistic? It means that we read our Bible from Old Testament to New. It means that there's a distinction between the church in Israel and a functional role for the nation of Israel in the future. And it means that there will be an earthly millennial reign of Jesus. That's it in a nutshell. And there are a whole lot of reasons, hermeneutical reasons behind that. And we would love to talk to you further if this is an area of interest for you. All right, man, it's Adam. I feel for Adam next week. He's got four of these. It's just you feel the, man, you want to say so much more. You want to dive in. So, all right, next, cessationism. Cessationism, a distinctive concerning the miraculous spiritual gifts. A distinctive concerning the miraculous spiritual gifts. There are, one, two, three, basically four spiritual gifts passages, what we might say formally passages in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, 28 through 30, and then his argument gets into 13 and 14, chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. Ephesians 4, 11, and then 1 Peter 4. Pastor Rick referenced 1 Peter 4, I believe, last week in his sermon. So what are, what's the difference between cessationism and continuationism? At least what are the... The positions. The question is essentially this Do the miraculous and revelatory gifts still exist in the church today? That's the question. So, prophecy, tongues, gifts of healing. That's typically where the, the discussion centers. A continuationist position says yes, the miraculous and revelatory gifts exist today and continue until the return of Christ. And there's going to be a spectrum within that of what that means. And a cessationist position says, no, the miraculous and revelatory gifts ceased at some point at or near the close of the apostolic era. So the distinctive MRBC is that we are cessationist, which means we hold that the miraculous and revelatory gifts ceased. We are not open but cautious. Okay, you might have heard this before. It's an actual position. It's a non-position position. Okay, I don't say that meaning disrespect. It means that you say, I've not necessarily seen this, but I'm open to the possibility. Okay, our position as cessationists does not mean that we're open to the possibility of the miraculous and revelatory gifts operating in a Sunday service here. If somebody just can work up the gumption to do that, okay? That's not what we mean by cessationism. We mean the miraculous and revelatory gifts ceased at some point at or near the close of the apostolic era. Now I wanna make a few clarifications. Again with the label thing, because of labels. First, cessationism at MRBC does not mean that we limit God or put God in a box, theologically. The issue is not whether God sovereignly does what he pleases or has the power to do so. The issue is whether he's gonna do something contrary to what he said he's going to do. So if we believe the scriptures say and present that the gifts have ceased, 
We're saying God isn't going to then make them operate again. That's way different than somebody, the, the, the sort of the grenade that's lobbed at cessationism sometimes. So you're putting God in a box. God can do whatever he wants. You're saying that he couldn't make Jordan Jacobson, you know, exercise the gift of prophecy right in the middle of the Sunday service today, right? Well, no, we're not saying that he couldn't. We're saying that he won't. There's a difference, okay? Also, cessationism must be built upon exegetical conclusions. Now, we could say that for every doctrine. This one in particular, I say that because here's how we often approach this issue. The debate in our minds generally consists of our experience within a charismatic church. So you come to MRBC or you come to another church from a charismatic church, you had a good experience, you believe that you grew, you heard good preaching, and, that, and let me affirm all those things, and also that you experience some form of what they call gifts. And so you say, based on that, I'm a continuationist. It's understandable. When we say we're cessationists, we are, we're inviting you to say, okay, but let's look at the scriptures and say, is that the right position? We're not questioning what you experienced or saying that it was invaluable. We're saying, what do we believe the Bible teaches? And that's, this issue probably more than the other ones carries with it a lot of experience and a lot of emotional attachment to that experience when you hold a continuationist position. I say that I, I came from an Assemblies of God church. I, that's, that's where I grew up. That's where I first heard the gospel. My family uh, was involved there and there was a strong emotional attachment to that. And so, the discussion generally didn't center on what the Bible teaches, it centered on what I saw, what I experienced. And so I just say, if you're there, be willing to submit yourself to actually looking at scripture and saying, based on exegetical conclusions from the teaching of scripture, I'm a convinced continuationist. Additionally, cessationism does not deny that God providentially performs miraculous or supernatural works. I believe that God can heal people. I just don't believe that he's gonna do that through one of the people in this church directly when they lay their hands on somebody and the illness is miraculously healed. Do you see the difference? A continuationist position with regard to the miraculous healing gift would say that God does that through someone with the gift of healing. Saying that we don't believe that that is continuing any longer is not the same thing as saying that God doesn't heal or that God can't do miracles. Hey, we're not saying that at all. Lastly, I would say this. Cessationism does not necessarily imply that all individuals who hold continuationist positions are dangerous or fanatical or have compromised the gospel. We don't believe that here, okay? We have theological friends that are continuationist. We disagree with them on this issue. Doesn't mean that we think they're fanatical. Doesn't mean that we think that, that they're heretics, okay? There's a spectrum Right, always a spectrum. And some of the guys that you see on TBN are different than some of the guys that you know could preach from this pulpit faithfully, but they disagree on this particular issue. Okay, so there's a spectrum. And by holding to cessationism at this church, we're not broad brushing every continuationist and saying you're dangerous and you're fanatical. Okay, that's important. I said lastly, actually this one's lastly, and it, it's worth saying, I, I say it tongue in cheek, but it, it's, it's good to say, cessation is in a memorable seat does not mean that you must sing with your hands in your pockets or clasp behind your back, okay? It doesn't mean that you can't show emotion or get excited about the Lord, that, that we only want the most stodgy, sort of boring, stone-faced Christians, 
again, that comes with the label. You know, you're afraid of emotion. No, we're not, I promise. Okay, that's a totally different discussion than does the Bible teach the gifts continue or the gifts have ceased, all right? All right, I've left myself a little time. I'm gonna try to run through some, some of our arguments for cessationism, okay? These are going to go quickly and I encourage you to follow up if you have questions. First is the argument from silence. The argument from silence. Sometimes the scriptures speak volumes by what they don't say. For example, in the book of Ephesians, when Paul is talking about spiritual warfare, he doesn't say anything about casting out demons, nothing. In fact, the entire approach is radically different than the approach of claiming that you have some authority by which you can command spiritual enemies to act in certain ways. Instead, he says, worry about yourself, put on your armor, take up the armor of God. So that's an example. When you read your New Testament, as the New New Testament era draws to a close, there appears to be a diminishing emphasis on miraculous gifts. Example, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, where Paul says that the purpose of 1 Timothy is to, so the church will know how to conduct itself. He tells Titus, "I, I want you to set the church in order. Interestingly, in those books, he does not, reference gifts, miraculous gifts, operating within the body at those churches. He doesn't give Timothy parameters for how to orchestrate the use of gifts, even similar to how he does in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, 14, in the pastoral epistles. So we at least have to ask the question, if this is how the church is supposed to operate, and this letter was written so that one would know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, it's curious that there's no mention of miraculous gifts, no mention of tongues, no mention of prophecy operating in the congregation that young Timothy was to pastor. Also, Paul does not heal Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter two or Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20. I was talking about this with Pastor Adam. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer if those gifts were operating that Paul would have immediately, I mean, some of those men almost lost their lives Philippians gives that testimony about Epaphroditus. They didn't seek out a healer. They didn't seek out somebody with the gift of healing. They were sick. They were ill. He does not instruct Timothy to seek miraculous healing for his ailment in his stomach. The book of James says to call the elders, and they're going to pray for those who are sick. He doesn't say, go seek out one who has the gift of healing and take care of this, okay? That would seem like, like an obvious conclusion. Basically, look, there's, there's just little to no mention of signs and wonders throughout the epistles after, I mean, you've got 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, as progressive, the New Testament is progressively unfolded. It's just not a priority. It's not a priority for Paul. It's not a priority for the churches as you read, apart from what we see in the revelatory offices of the apostle and the prophets. But again, that's an argument from silence, right? There's also an argument from the purposes of spiritual gifts. My experience with continuationism was that it was, it was very much focused on your own edification, not to the exclusion of others, but the emphasis was that you seek certain things because it's going to enhance your spiritual experience. 
it's going to draw you personally closer to the Lord. It's going to enable you to serve better and have a greater experience of worship. But the purpose of spiritual gifts that is made very clear in Scripture, particularly 1 Corinthians 12, is that they are always for the benefit of others and not the recipient of the gift. From the perspective of the one who's given the gift, the, the, it, the emphasis was always outward, which is the basis of Paul's illustration in 1 Corinthians 12 of the body. When he says to the Corinthians who were exalting a very few gifts, particularly tongues, and he says, you're exalting this one, despising the other gifts, and then he gives that wonderful illustration of the body and says, every body part's necessary, right? The eyes can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Every gift is necessary. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches that God sovereignly distributed the gifts as he pleased and that every gift is necessary for the building up of the body. Everyone has a gift for the sake of the body, not for your own individual spiritual upbuilding. That's very important. Gifts were given as evidence, as sign to others. Romans 15, 19, 1 Corinthians 14, 21 through 22. They're given for the evangelization of unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 14, 23 through 25, Ephesians 4, 11, and they're given for the edification of other believers. And that's basically every spiritual gifts passage of the four, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Gifts are a stewardship for God's glory for the benefit of the body. That's how they're defined in scripture. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 13, to use a gift to build oneself up or exalt oneself Paul says it's worthless. It doesn't matter how wonderful the gift is if it's done without love. And the reason that gifts are to be exercised with love is because the gifts are for others, not self. So I think we have to be careful of claiming that a particular gift is to be sought for a heightened worship experience because that is contrary to the stated biblical purpose of the gifts. Additionally, there's an argument that's related from the sovereign distribution of the spiritual gifts. God says... 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, that he gave the gifts as he intended and as he pleased sovereignly. And so we should at least pause if we feel that there should be some sort of, that we all need to seek after these particular special charismatic gifts. We have to be careful there, okay? If, if a continuationist position is that everyone should speak to, seek to speak in tongues, that it provides a, a level of intimate communication with God or something like that, or that everyone should seek to exercise a particular gift of prophecy or something, it's, it runs contrary to a major portion of Paul's argument, which is that God sovereignly gave you the gifts he wants you to have. Okay, And we'll address the issue in just a moment of, well, what about where it says desire the greater gifts? But God's word says he gave them as he pleased. So the notion that I should be unsatisfied with the gift I have and that I need to seek after another gift in order to elevate myself spiritually, I think is contrary to that. It it basically calls into question the goodness of God. Why isn't he giving me the gift that I apparently need to have this increased spiritual life when the scriptures say, no, 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 he's giving you the gift he wants you to have, now use it, okay? Sorry, I'm looking at the clock. The argument from the biblical presentation of the gifts, and I'm gonna hit these. Look, the scriptures teach that the apostles and prophets played a unique foundational role. The office of apostle was limited. 
the purpose of apostles and prophets was foundational, and that foundation was revelatory. That foundation was the bringing of God's word to individuals. So along with that, there was a foundational role of miraculous gifts. This is declared, you can write down Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. There's a number of Bible verses that show that miraculous gifts played a foundational role in affirming and confirming the revelation that was coming from the foundational roles of the apostles and the prophets. That's demonstrated, it's declared. Basically, in summary, the argument the apostles and prophets were foundational revelatory offices that were built upon later when the church was given teach, preachers and teachers and scripture was circulating. There's no longer any apostles or prophets, therefore there's no longer any need for attesting miraculous gifts like healing, and there's no new revelation being given. So there's no purpose for revelatory gifts. We also teach that 1 Corinthians 13 says that the gifts will cease. So 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says that the gifts will cease. The debate is when, but it clearly says that they're temporary. So you can look there and see the, the flow of Paul's argument. The Corinthians were exalting certain gifts, and Paul warns them and says, these, these are going to go away. Your focus shouldn't merely be on the exercise of these gifts. He rebukes their mentality that they all should have the same gift and says, nope, God sovereignly distributed it how he wants, 1 Corinthians 12. He rebukes their selfish display of the gifts, 1 Corinthians 13, and says everything's to be done in love. Then he puts their use of the gifts in order in 1 Corinthians 14 and says, the gifts that should be exercised are the ones that are intelligible, namely prophecy over what is unintelligible, which is uninterpreted tongues. And he moves through there and, and he lays out that argument. In the middle, 1 Corinthians 13, one of his arguments is that the gifts are temporary. These miraculous gifts that were being exalted are temporary. They're going to cease. Another argument for cessationism is that the modern day practice of the miraculous and revelatory gifts is different from the New Testament. And some continuationists will readily admit this. So I'm not saying anything that's a, it's a, some sort of a charge. Prophecy is defined differently by continuationists, many, and so is the gift of tongues and healing is as well. Modern day healing by individuals is nothing like what is demonstrated in the New Testament. The character of the healers is different. The quality of the healings is different. Tongues, in scripture we would say that the miraculous ability to speak actual foreign languages that were previously unknown to the speaker, that that's the gift, that it's not a, an indiscernible angelic language and that it's not some sort of a private prayer language. And then prophecy. We would say that that is the ability or ministry of receiving revelation directly from God and communicating that to others. Now, in some continuationist theology, it's defined as it's not equal to scripture. It's a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of something that the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. And that's a definition from Wayne Grudem. Sam Storms has a similar definition. That although God is the inspirational source of all prophetic revelation, its communication by individual prophets is not in all cases protected from error or human admixture. We would say no, prophecy is directly from God and therefore infallible in the New Testament and that gift has ceased. And when we encourage one another today with biblical truth, that is given by revelation from God, our Bible, 
and we communicate those things to one another as encouragement, as exhortation, as admonition. But we don't assign a, a supernatural prompting, but that could be fallible to what is said. So that could be, could be dangerous. All right, let's talk about the issue of what about earnestly desire. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. said earlier that one of the arguments for cessationism is the argument from the sovereign distribution of the gifts, that God gave the gifts that he wanted all of us to have. In response to that, some might say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 12, 31, where Paul says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. First, it should be noted that the interpretation of that first clause is actually debated. Is Paul saying to the Corinthians, you earnestly desire the greater gifts, but in contrast, I'm going to show you a better way? Is he commanding them, you should earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I'll show you a more excellent way? Some even say that this is a slogan of the Corinthians, that they were saying, earnestly desire the greater gifts, and Paul was saying, no, no, no I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Okay, so there's debate even over the meaning of those verses. I think that it's perfectly reasonable to take it as an imperative, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And that doesn't necessitate a continuationist position. The argument from chapter 12 is that believers should not all expect to exercise similar gifts any more than every part of the body should expect to be the same as the other parts of the body. Okay, your nose shouldn't expect to be a hand Neither should one who has the gift of serving, so to speak, necessarily expect to throw that aside so that they can pursue another gift in Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 12. So, if we assume the continuationist argument that 1 Corinthians 12.31 is a command for all of us to desire the so-called charismatic gifts as they're defined today, that definitely leaves us with tongues as one of those and some form of prophecy. But Paul actually in this verse doesn't list tongues as one of the greater gifts to be sought after. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 5 and 19, he says, greater is the one who prophesies than one who speaks in a tongue. And in fact, the whole argument of 1 Corinthians 14 is that tongues without interpretation is of no value for the body of Christ. And that prophecy, because of its clarity and intelligibility, is always preferred over tongues. And he actually says, right, however in the church, 1419, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. It's pretty clear that Paul is placing a priority on prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 over and against tongues, which was, in context, the elevated gift in Corinth. So when Paul says desire the greater gifts, we're really hard-pressed to include tongues as one of those greater gifts that's to be desired in context. Really hard-pressed. Okay? I don't think that necessarily his list in 28 and 29 are a hierarchy of 1 Corinthians 12. I don't think that that's the list and that when he says desire the greater gifts, we're supposed to desire the first one on the list because first is apostles and prophets. And so I don't think he's saying that we're to desire those gifts. I think he's saying if you desire the exercise of the greater gifts, then he goes on and defines later what that is. In Corinth, it was prophecy, which is the whole argument he's making throughout 12, 13, and 14. 
So that's important in context. He wanted them to desire the preeminent gift that was being employed for the edification of the saints, which he says is prophecy. So we have to be careful if we want to make 1 Corinthians 12, 31 mean that we should desire to speak in tongues for the spiritual value that it will give us in our quiet time in our prayer life. I don't think that's a legitimate interpretation of 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Third, I guess I would say this in closing, if prophecy, healing, and tongues are no longer operative, then how do we obey 1 Corinthians 12, 31? I think that's a worthy question. I think we would say initially that it can't be obeyed in the same way as the Corinthians. An example of this would be the command to greet each other with a holy kiss. You can obey that command without giving everybody a big welcome smooch when you come in on Sunday morning, right? How? By greeting them with love, by greeting them with a joy in our historical context, which may be a hug. I guess it could be a kiss. It could be a handshake. could be a bro hug. I don't know. There's all kinds of ways that this works itself out. You can obey the command to greet one another in the, the implication of that command without necessarily obeying it in the exact same way. And there are other examples. That one's just fairly readily available to us. 1 Corinthians 12.31 can be obeyed. What's it mean? It means that we should desire the edification of the saints through the exercise of the gifts in Mission Road Bible Church. That's what it means. Paul is arguing for the proper exercise of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. The desire that edifying gifts would be exercised in our midst is not contrary to what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. All diversity is God's design, and that means that not all will exercise every gift. He makes that clear. And so I believe verse 31 is a command that implicates us to desire that the most edifying gifts will be employed in the body at MRBC for the building up of this church and the praise of the glory of Christ. We can obey 1 Corinthians 12, 31 without redefining prophecy, tongues, healing, and without seeking gifts like tongues that actually wouldn't be one of the greater gifts in this context. So it, it's not, well, what do you do with this? Are you just gonna cut it out of your Bible? Not at all. We, a, a cessationist position should seek to obey 1 Corinthians 12, 31, if it's an imperative, by desiring that the greater gifts be exercised in Mission Road Bible Church. Say, what are the greater gifts? The edifying gifts, the most edifying gifts, that there would be clarity, that there would be intelligibility in the communication of God's truth. That's what it means. And in light of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul would say, and he does say in that, that every gift is essential, sovereignly given, and to be employed with joy. And so I just, that was an aside, but 1 Corinthians 12, 31 isn't like the death nail for a, a cessationist position. Okay, you can obey that verse without adopting a continuationist view. Let me leave, you, leave us with this, and then I'll pray. And I would say that to suggest that tongues as currently understood or the personal use of any other spiritual gift, to suggest that those are itself in our lives, the person using the gift is a catalyst for personal growth, I would say doesn't accord with scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, if the gifts are given for the edification of others, there shouldn't be so much focus on what we're doing with our gifts that benefits us. 
So a very striving of some sort of a fuller experience that's rooted in the gifts that we get to exercise, I would say is contrary to what Paul's arguing for in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. The clear emphasis for Paul and other New Testament writers is a life of devotion to Jesus that manifests itself in spiritual fruit. If you read your New Testament, you will find much more emphasis on spiritual fruit than spiritual gifts. And when you look in your Bible at the spiritual gifts passages, the emphasis is always others. It's your obligation to obey by employing your gift for everyone else. And so we get it out of whack if we make the, the aim of our spiritual life the exercise of a gift, or we make the demonstration of our maturity a spiritual gift, or we make our devotional life to God dependent on the exercise of a spiritual gift. Paul says, and I would say all the other New Testament writers, focus on fruit. We can't debate what Paul says in Galatians 5. Walk by the Spirit. That's the command. Yes, exercise the spiritual gifts that you've been given for others. Don't seek spiritual gifts and the manifestation of them for your own edification. That, that's contrary to their, their purpose. And don't think that a particular spiritual gift unlocks the key to a higher sort of spiritual level in your life. That wouldn't accord with scripture. The aim is fruit, not gifts. Walk by the spirit and don't carry out the desires of the flesh. That should be the, our motive. And in doing that, we should be employing the gifts as we learned last year or last week, as good stewards in this body for Christ's glory. Let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. I'm happy to answer any questions up front here. And uh, as we said at the beginning, throughout this time of looking at our distinctives this week, next week, if you're new to our church and you're curious about something in our doctrinal statement, please seek an elder, seek a pastor. We would love to talk to you about that.